Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Four hobbits, two humans, one dwarf, one elf, and one wizard. If you know what I'm talking about, then you know I'm talking about the Fellowship of the Ring from J.R.R. Tolkien. One group of deep differences that's united around one common mission, to destroy the ring that holds the power of evil and thus restore peace to Middle-earth. As you read The Fellowship of the Ring, you'll discover that this motley crew forges deep love and loyalty and service to one another. I'll give you a few examples. The mighty Aragorn says to the little Frodo, if by my life or by my death I can protect you, I will. When Frodo doesn't know who he can trust, his friend Mary reassures him, you can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you would keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. One of my favorites, when Frodo can't go any further, his closest friend, Sam, urges him on. He says, Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you but I can carry you. Oh, don't you want to be part of something like the Fellowship of the Ring? Don't you want this church to be a little bit like that? What's happening in John 13 and why is it here? These are crucial questions to ask when you come to any portion of the Bible, including this one. Well, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke before him, John slows the pace of his book down tremendously at this point. The last couple of days of Jesus's earthly life happen almost in slow motion in the Gospel of John. Starting in John 13, John slows down and John zooms in. No longer does he show Jesus's interactions with the public. Now he's showing us Jesus's interactions with his disciples. John takes us up close and personal. 
He's telling us, here's what Jesus says and does with the people who are closest to him in the final days of his life. Even here, the last meal they shared together. Today, we see what happens as this last meal begins. Jesus does a stunning act of humble, loving service. And what's happening, we'll see, is that Jesus is previewing what he's about to do. His final, ultimate act of humble, loving service, going to the cross. And he's also, by previewing what he's about to do, he's showing what he's going to create in that final act of loving, humble service. He's going to create what one author calls, not the fellowship of the ring, he's creating the fellowship of the cleansed. I love that. The fellowship of the cleansed. Let's look at West Creek, not as a social club, not as a nice hobby. Don't look at West Creek like the place you come for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings to hang out with friendly people. Why don't you look at West Creek a little bit more like the fellowship of the cleansed? A community of people whom Jesus has forgiven. A community of people whom Jesus has made his own. A community of people whom Jesus has made new. A community that is now marked with Jesus' humble, loving service. To summarize the main point of John 13, 1 to 17, we can put it like this. That those who have been made clean through receiving the loving service of Jesus will reflect the loving service of Jesus to each other. That main point is going to provide the structure for our time. We'll look first at verses 1 through 5 at the nature of Jesus' loving service. We'll look next at verses 6 through 11, the need to receive Jesus' loving service. And then finally at verses 12 through 15, the call to reflect Jesus' loving service. So Looking first at verses one to five, the nature of Jesus's loving service. As John regularly does, he sets the table before he goes into the main course of the action. So the way that John leads up to Jesus's loving service is gonna help you and I appreciate this act even more. And you can look at it a little bit like a detective. You're gonna appreciate what Jesus does when you look at when he did it. The action that's about to take place, John tells us, happens right before they share the Passover meal. This is a really important detail that we're going to revisit later. John tells us that Jesus loves them at the point of his hour. Remember that term, the hour, has loomed large throughout the Gospel of John. And look at how John describes the hour here. He says this is uh, not the time when Jesus would pass away. He doesn't describe it as the time that Jesus would die or that Jesus would cross over to the other side. He says this is the hour when Jesus would depart out of the world to the Father. And this is a really meaningful way to describe it. You know, one commentator observes how every person who's united to Jesus by faith can in some way describe their own death the same way here. Depart out of the world to be with the Father. You know, guys, you and I, we live in a culture that's scared of death, really that wants to avoid death at any cost. You, you go to a funeral, you almost have to convince people to be sad because they, they just won't, they won't engage with death when it's reality. This, even this little description reminds you to speak of death like a Christian, like the Bible does. That death isn't natural, that death isn't wanted, but death is overcome. And it's no longer just an ending, it's a beginning. You're gonna appreciate what Jesus did more when you look at when he loved and when did he love. John says he loved when it was the hardest. 
He loved not just up until his death, he loved all the way through his death. John says he loved to the end. Author Dane Ortland writes this, that Jesus came to the cliff of the cross and he didn't change his mind. You know, we love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite the betrayal. You and I love, we'll we'll love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through the forsakenness. You and I, we love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. John's just setting the table for us before he gets to the main course. He wants us to appreciate the love of Jesus. You're gonna appreciate it more when you see who Jesus loved. John says that Jesus loves his own. Now, you and I often think how it's just an amazing thing that Jesus loves sinners, and it is. I think it's just as of an amazing thing that Jesus loves saints. Even like these guys, the disciples. Jesus loves this group of knuckleheads after they've argued with one another over and over again. He loves them after they have talked back to him, dared to talk back to him. He loves them after they have failed him and failed to understand him over and over again. Jesus' love for saints is amazing. I know that can be part of your story, Christian. I know it's mine. Jesus has loved me even though I have, with eyes wide open, done expressly what he has told me not to do. And he loves me still. He went to the cross for me. You can see that same love in 1 Corinthians. You might remember that these infamous uh, Christians, this church was filled with people who were prideful, people who are divisive, people who are critical, and even worse. And yet, what does Paul call the Corinthians at the beginning of the letter? He calls them saints. Jesus doesn't wait until you're worthy of, uh, of his own name before he puts his name on you. No, Jesus puts his name on you, and then little by little, he makes you worthy of him, more like him. Who does, Jesus, who does Jesus love? Well, John says Jesus loves his own, but John also tells you that Jesus loves his enemies. Right in verse two, after mentioning Jesus' own, the next individual John mentions is Judas. Now, John describes the act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet very intentionally. So you skip down to verse five. He says Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then you go to verse six. It says, and then he came to Peter. It's presented as if Peter is the last one in the whole group. So you know what that means? That Judas was among the people who had his feet washed by Jesus. Yes, even the one who had it in his heart to betray him. Jesus washed that guy's feet. Now, just a quick note on how John describes Judas John says that the devil had already put it in his heart to betray him. Now, that might lead you to think, oh, well, it's not Judas' fault that he betrayed Jesus. Jesus, he wasn't responsible for his actions. I want to argue against that. Just one chapter earlier, John has already shown us Judas' heart. If you flip back to chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, remember, Judas is the one who charged that this great and generous gift was wasted on Jesus When in reality, John tells us Judas just wanted to use that gift on himself. 
So John 13, 2 isn't in your Bible for you to justify your sin to God by telling him, God, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't need to create a new desire in Judas's heart. The devil just needed to show Judas a new opportunity. Remember James 1, 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So John 13 shows you not that Judas isn't responsible, Notice John doesn't say Satan was the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas was. This verse shows you that what Judas did was nothing less than satanic. And Jesus washed that guy's feet. Jesus' loving service is more amazing the closer you look at it. When you see when he loved, when you see who he loved, and also when you see the one who loved, not just the objects of his love, but the subject of the love, the one who was doing the loving, Jesus himself. John tells you this, the one who was doing all this in verse three. He's the one to whom the father had given all things, the one who came from God, the one who was going back to God. That's the one who loved like this. Now, I think you're supposed to see a contrast between verse two and verse three. You're supposed to see the ugliness of evil in verse two and the beauty and power of goodness in verse three. And I think it kind of creates this effect that one like Jesus could have swiftly and demonstrably and powerfully taken out one like Judas. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Judas gives his enemy what he doesn't deserve, an act of amazing love. John wants you to see how amazing Jesus's love is. It's more amazing when you look at how Jesus loved Just as Jesus rose from his heavenly throne and set aside his glory, so here Jesus rises from supper and sets aside his outer garment. Just as Jesus took on human flesh, so here he takes on the towel around his waist. And Jesus doesn't just wear the garb of a slave. He performs the task of a slave. You might know the background to this, but in those days, washing feet would be just about as glamorous as changing a bedpan. Think about it. There are no sidewalks. There are no paved roads. And there are no Air Jordans or Florsheims or Skechers. There are no cars. There are no buggies. You know what there is? There's dust. There's dirt. There's mud. There are sandals. And there's lots and Lots of walking. So it was custom that upon entering a house, especially a nicer house, that your feet would be washed. But this was more than just an unglamorous task. This task came with a stigma. There were even some slaves who wouldn't do this. It was often that only the Gentile slaves would do an act like this. And here is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has every right to receive service but instead he gives it. One who was so high set aside his interests for the sake of ones so low. This is the nature of his loving service. And now we make our way to verse six. It says, he came to Simon Peter. And if you know anything about Peter, then you might be thinking, oh boy, here we go again. Because Peter seems to take every opportunity to speak on behalf of the entire disciples, and he seems to take every opportunity to put his foot in his mouth. 
to say what everyone else is thinking. And a couple times Peter gets it right, but many times he falls flat on his face. And well, this is one of those times. The opening verses uh, show us the nature of Jesus's loving service. And now verses six through 11, Jesus's exchange with Peter, well, they show us the need to receive Jesus's loving service. Let's just walk through this conversation and we'll make some observations along the way. So Peter initiates the conversation in verse six. Lord, do you wash my feet? It's an interesting question. Peter hasn't lost his sense of sight or touch. He's not questioning the fact of Jesus washing him. Neither is he questioning the willingness of Jesus to wash him. He's just seen Jesus wash all the other disciples' feet. Now, I think Peter is emphasizing the personal pronouns in that question. You can almost italicize the you and the my in that question. Do you wash my feet? It's really Peter's way of saying, Jesus, this should be reversed. I should be the one washing your feet. So Jesus responds, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus wants to cut Peter some slack. Peter, I get it. I know it's tough to see what I'm doing, but Peter, I need you to trust me. Just on the surface, that alone is a really good lesson for you and me. Because when you got hard things in your life that you don't understand, it's often the case, if you're anything like me, that you want God to meet you with this full-fledged explanation of what's going on. But often it's the case that God meets you with two simple words. Trust me. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus assures Peter he's going to understand what he's doing afterward. Well, after what? Given John's already mentioned the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection, well, it must be after his his death and resurrection. After that, Peter's going to be able to see what Jesus was doing at this final Passover meal. It was the final Passover lamb who would take away all the sins of the world. He was previewing what he was about to do at the cross. As one pastor puts it, just as Jesus humbly washed the disciples' feet with the water and the towel, so also Jesus would be humiliated at his cross and by his blood wash the disciples' souls. But in verse 8, Peter doesn't listen. He tells Jesus, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. You know, this has been a pattern in the Gospel of John that Jesus will often use a physical reality in order to give a spiritual lesson. So way back in John chapter three, he tells good old Nicodemus, hey, uh, you need to be born again. And that's Jesus's way of saying, uh, Nicodemus, you need a new heart. And Nicodemus thinks, well, Jesus, how am I supposed to climb up into my mother's womb again and physically be born again? He's stuck on the physical. Next chapter, John four, same thing happens. Jesus tells the woman at the well, I can give you living waters and you'll never be thirsty again. He's telling her, Listen, your heart is desperately thirsty and it won't seek any satisfaction other than in me. She's stuck on the physical. She says, Jesus, show me where this water source is and let me go get a drink. John chapter six, same thing happens. Jesus says, in order to have a part of him, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Wow. Well, you read that chapter and you realize this is a spiritual lesson. He's showing what it means to believe in him and what he's come to do but the people are stuck on the physical. They think Jesus literally is saying, you gotta eat me. And so here in John 13, Jesus washes Peter's feet. It's meant to show Peter his need to receive washing for his soul. 
But Peter's stuck on the physical reality. He's saying, this task is too shameful for you, Jesus. You are the Messiah, the long-awaited king. But then Jesus gets to the point. How does he respond back to Peter? He tells him, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, to have a share with Jesus is to belong, and belong to him. It's to be one of his own, as John has said it earlier. To have a share with Jesus is to be a co-heir with him, to receive the eternal blessings that he alone deserves. And Peter knows, or Jesus knows that Peter wants this. Peter wants to have a share with Jesus. And I know you, you, you long for things like significance. You long for meaning and joy and acceptance and love. And what you really long for deep down is favor from God. And so the question is, how do you get it? Well, Jesus says there is a condition. You only have this if a certain condition is met. Jesus reverses how you and I would naturally think about how this works. He even reverses what Peter thinks about how this works. You and I think, well, if I do enough good things, if I only serve God with enough passion, if I'm only a better person than my neighbor, then maybe I'll have a share with Jesus and favor from God. If Peter, for him, it was, if only I can wash my Lord's feet, then, then I'll have a share with Jesus. Then I'll have favor from God. But Jesus says to Peter, you only have a share with me, not if you wash me, but if I wash you. Not if you serve me, but if I serve you. Amazing that is, our God serves us right here. Right here, I think, is the heart of Christianity. Right here, I think, is the heart between the difference uh, between Christianity and all of the other religions. I've heard it explained like this, that every other religion starts off with some form of this same message, that God wants you to display your love and devotion to him by serving him. Christianity starts off, God wants to display his power and love by serving you. You just receive it. Acts 17, 24 and 25. I could show you this in another part of the Bible. You could turn there if you'd like. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So do you hear what that's saying? God doesn't need your service. You need God's service. God doesn't have deficiencies that you need to make up for. You have the deficiencies that God has to make up for. And Jesus stands ready to wash you. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that I didn't come for you to serve me. He says, I came to serve you. I didn't come for you to give your life for me. I came to give, give my life for you so that you would be forgiven, so that you'd be freed, so that you would have favor from God. How good is this good news? Friends, if you haven't received it today, why, 
Just like Jonathan said before we sang that song, why, why don't you make it your prayer? You tell God today, God, nothing in my hands that I bring. I don't bring my so-called service to you. I don't bring my past performance to you. I don't bring my so-called achievements to you. I don't bring my comparisons to other people to you. Nothing in my hands I bring, God. Simply to the cross I cling. That's it. Peter responds to Jesus' correction in verse nine. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Well, say what you want about Peter, but he holds no opinion half-heartedly. All in or all out. Then once again, Jesus clarifies for Peter in verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's an interesting statement. I think Peter's statement to Jesus has given Jesus a new way to apply the foot washing. Previously, Jesus has talked about those who haven't been washed at all. And now Jesus is talking about those who have been washed. What do those people need? Do they need an entire new bath? No, Jesus says they just need their feet washed. So if you look closely at verse 10, you can simultaneously be completely clean and still need your feet washed. Those two things can be true about you at the same time. How does this work? Well, it might help to compare this verse with another book that the Apostle John wrote, 1 John. So you could flip forward in the New Testament. It's almost to the very end. And you could find 1 John 5, verse 13. These are the people that John's been writing to, this whole letter. These are the people he's writing to. He's writing to people who already have eternal life. He just wants them to know it. You already have eternal life. If you flip to the beginning of the letter, 1 John 1, verse 9, even this group of people, the people who have eternal life already, even that group of people still needs to continually confess their sins. So it must not be that they need to confess their sins in order that they would have eternal life. No, they already have eternal life. So why do they need to confess their sins? Well, it must be not to have favor from God, but to, st- but to continue to have fellowship with God. They need to confess their sins, not to have eternal life, but to be close to the one who saved them. So friend, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you have received forgiveness through his death in your place, you can fall in one of two ditches. You can think that now when I sin, and essentially my feet get dirty, that means now I need a complete new wash. You can think that. Or you can think that when I sin, my feet get dirty, it's not a big deal because I'm completely washed. Right, so on the one hand, you could think that now that Jesus has made me completely clean, it's up for me to stay this, stay this way. You maybe treat the Christian life, this is just the best analogy I can think of, so bear with me. I think you could treat the Christian life like the Super Mario video game. You've been placed on this long race to get to the finish line. It's filled with obstacles, it's filled with opponents. But anytime you mess up, the moment that you mess up, you gotta start back all the way at the beginning. Now that might sound ridiculous to you, but this is what leads some Christians to think that they have to pray to receive Christ, I don't know, five, six times before it really takes in. So what leads people to say, I just gotta ask Jesus into my heart again. I just gotta get baptized for the second, for the third time. And maybe then it's really gonna work. 
But if you've received Jesus by faith, what, what Jesus tells you what you need isn't to start completely over again. What you need is to turn back to him and to keep trusting him. To take heart that Jesus is the one who washed you completely in order to save you. And now, he's the one, when you continue to turn to him, he's the one who will wash your feet so that he can stay close to you. Mm. Now, on the other hand, you can think that now that Jesus has washed me completely, it doesn't matter if, I, if my feet get dirty. Again, if, if life is like the Super Mario video game, you could think, well, Mario's got unlimited lives. He could just keep going. Jesus is just going to love me anyway. It doesn't matter if I mess up. Well, Jesus uh, assumes that the one he's washed will care if they sin. He assumes that the people that he's washed will want to live for him. He assumes that the people he's washed will want to stay close to him. Friends, if you've received Jesus and through him have been washed, I'm just gonna bottom line it for you. Here's what this means. That's when you realize something like, I care more about what's coming on TV than I care about the state of my friend's soul that I, I have been distracted and indifferent to the word of God instead of being hungry for it. When you realize I've fallen for the same temptation over and over again, when that sits on you, stop asking Jesus into your heart, to quote another pastor, and start confessing your sins. Confess your sins daily. Lord's Prayer, what's a part of that? Lord, forgive us of our sins. <laughs> Confess your sins sincerely. Confess your sins in light of the word that you read. Let the word examine you. Confess your sins specifically. And then trust your Savior and ask for help to keep going. Because I hope that, that in your pursuit to stay close with Jesus, that, that can't happen unless you confess your sins, unless your feet get washed. And he is there ready to wash them. Now, there's just one more component in verses 6 through 11 that's worth highlighting. Jesus says at the end of these verses that not every one of them is clean. Now, he hasn't pointed him out to the disciples yet, but John has already told us that Jesus is talking about Judas. This rounds out what it looks like to receive Jesus' loving service. We saw first that to receive Jesus' loving service, uh, you must receive it uh, in order to have favor from God. This is where you start. You don't start with your service to him. You start with his service to you. Next, we saw that those who receive Jesus's loving service are fully washed, but they will need to be continually cleansed of their sin, not to be saved, but to be close to their savior. And here at the very end in verse 11, you see that having the appearance of being washed by Jesus isn't the same thing as actually being washed by Jesus. So remember, I think we can make a good case that Judas was among the crowd who had his feet washed by Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, not all of you are clean. How do these two things fit together? Well, it must mean that this physical washing was never meant to create a spiritual reality. This physical washing was never meant to create a spiritual reality. I'll just say it a different way. There was nothing magic about that water. Just like there's nothing magic about the water you get dumped under when you get baptized. Just like there's nothing magic that's going to be about the, with the little wafer and the little juice that you take with the Lord's Supper. There's nothing magic about it. These things don't create spiritual realities. 
I, I know I've shared this similar analogy before, but it's just so helpful. You know, when I was in, in sixth grade, a you know, pudgy white kid, you know, putting on a Kobe Bryant jersey didn't make me an NBA player. As much as I wish that it did. If only that were the case. No, the, the jersey is a sign to show those who already are players. It's, a jersey isn't meant to create a reality. It's meant to recognize a reality. So again, my friend, let me just bottom line it for you. In, in light of Judas here, went through all the same things that all the other disciples did. It's easy to look like you've received Jesus, but not actually have received him. It's very easy. Verses 12 to 17, Jesus transitions to apply this foot washing in still another way. Jesus has shown us the need for us to receive his loving service, and now he calls us to reflect his loving service. I want to show you the order of Jesus's argument, and I also want to show you the logic of Jesus's argument. You can see the order of his argument in verse 14. He says that if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So just pay very close attention. Who are the ones who now wash one another's feet? They are the ones who have already had their feet washed by Jesus. That has happened to them before they wash one another's feet. You see the order of that? The order of that's very important. You will reflect Jesus's loving service only if you have first received Jesus's loving service. That's how it's meant to work. One of my favorite examples of this in the entire Bible, again, I know I've shared this before, but it's near and dear to my heart, comes from 2 Samuel. And there David has finally become king of Israel. He's endured years of life as a fugitive. The previous king, Saul, has hunted David for no reason, just because he was jealous. But now David's finally at peace. He's finally on the throne. And then David says, you know what? I want to show kindness to one of Saul's descendants. It's amazing. To one of his former enemies. You know, it was common practice in that time for new kings to rid their kingdom of all potential rivals, but not David. David wants to bring someone in who used to be an enemy and give him a seat at his table as a friend. Now, what would lead David to do something like that? Is it just because David has good morals? David knows that it's important to be kind, to be merciful, to be loving. Is it just because David feels guilty for all the times he wasn't kind or wasn't merciful and he's just trying to make up for it now? No, I don't think it's either of those. I think it's much more than that. David reflects what he's already received. So in 2 Samuel 9, David gives mercy to his enemy and his enemy, his former enemy tells David, Who, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Well, David gives mercy because two chapters earlier, David received mercy from God. David tells God, God, who am I that you should have brought your servant thus far? When you truly receive mercy, it will make you merciful. When you truly receive forgiveness, it will make you forgiving. When you truly receive love and service, it will make you loving and serving. That's how it's meant to work. 
Friend, this tells you that for your Christian life, the right fuel for loving and serving others isn't to give yourself a pep talk every day. The right fuel for loving and serving others isn't to make, your, make yourself feel guilty enough so that you'll do it. No, the right fuel for loving and serving others is to cherish how much God has loved and served you. That's the right fuel. When you start this way, when the order is this, you'll realize I have all that I need and it will be a joy and a privilege to do to others what you have already received. So maybe you're trying to live for Jesus, but you're wondering why you just keep running on empty. Friend, could it be that you're trying to reflect Jesus's love without receiving it day in and day out, without basking in it, without savoring it, without cherishing it? The order matters. You receive, then you reflect. But the logic matters as well. I want to show you the logic of Jesus's argument. Throughout verses 12 through 17, Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser. He says, guys, if the teacher does this, how much more should the student do it? If the master does it, how much more should the servant do it? If the king does it, how much more should the messenger do it? Jesus tells his disciples, if washing feet isn't beneath me, shouldn't be beneath you either. Now, just as a housekeeping note, there are some Christians who take this literally and practice physically washing one another's feet. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But I don't think foot washing has quite the same significance now as it did then. Also, when we continue to read the New Testament, there's a widespread practice of baptism. There's a widespread practice of the Lord's Supper. But there's no really widespread practice of foot washing. It's because I think that the disciples emphasized more of the heart of what Jesus was saying. Don't act like you're too important to love and serve people. Don't let the task of a servant be beneath you, guys. Christian, it's just a a question for you. Are there tasks that are beneath you? You think I'm too important to do this? It's a good question for the pastors here in this room. Are there tasks that are beneath you? Now, you know, a lot of sermons are just meant to make you feel guilty and convicted. And maybe that's a good, you need a good challenge every now and then. But I also want to encourage you. Because in West Creek, I see so much loving service of Jesus. At West Creek, for several members of West Creek, you know, it's not beneath you to take at least one Sunday a month or more. To not be in this room and to be in another room in order to love our children and our families here. It's not beneath you to do something like that. It's not beneath you to care for our kids, point them to Jesus, and teach them God's word. Christian, is something like that beneath you? At West Creek, it's not beneath someone here to spend time with a homebound member in order for that member's spouse to just get out of the house for a little bit. At West Creek, I know it's not beneath someone here to clean the building every Saturday morning. It's not beneath At West Creek, it's not beneath several people here to open up their home for dinner and conversation and Bible study. At West Creek, I know it's not beneath someone here to drive a fellow church members to doctor's appointments because they have a hard time driving. At West Creek, it's not beneath several families here to welcome another family's kids in their home when they need it the most. At West Creek, it's not beneath someone here 
to go with a fellow member to the emergency room and stay with her until three in the morning. I love that. This is God's grace in you, fellow West Creekers. And I just want to say to all of you, or I thank God for you and, and to say to the rest of us, won't you join in this? Won't you join in this? Don't you want more of this? Let your guards down and be loving and serving. Won't you pray that our Lord would help us to reflect him more and more? You know, reflect him not just with one another as a church. This is the first arena. But also that you would be a loving servant as a husband or as a wife. You would be a loving servant as a mom or as a dad. You would be a loving servant like Jesus was to you when you show up at work. When the ring is finally destroyed in The Lord of the Rings, Sam wonders famously, is everything sad finally coming untrue? Now that Jesus has died and rose again, now that Jesus has served us by shedding his blood that we might be washed and forgiven, he intends those who have received him to be the preview that yes, everything sad is coming untrue to be the preview that in a sad and selfish world, Jesus is making the fellowship of the cleansed. People who really do love and serve one another like he has loved and served us. Those he has made clean and those he is helping to live new. Friend, won't you receive him and won't you reflect him with his help? Let's pray. Amazing love, Lord, how can it be that thou, our God, shouldst die for me? We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We would be nowhere without it. We thank you for your great purpose that you came not to be served, but amazingly enough to serve even people like us, that we might be freed and forgiven. We want to bask in this love. We want this to be our heartbeat day in and day out. We want this to be our satisfaction and our joy, the source of our contentment. We want this to be what overflows from us that you might be visible in our loving service to each other and to those around us. Would you make it so more and more for our joy and the glory of your name? Amen.